All right, good morning. Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 16. Open your Bibles or navigate on your device. We're studying through the Gospel of Matthew. As most of you know, we're in chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12. The topic we find there this morning, Jesus warns his disciples that the Pharisees and Sadducees are like yeast, corrupting the pure word of God. The title of our message, The Yeasty Boys. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our morning. We're really prepped by the worship, Lord. Our hearts have been made open to you, and we're aware, Lord, of your presence in this place. And now we pray that you would be our teacher, that this text would speak to us uh, here in the 21st century, here in Hanford, California, Lord, that it would really, really speak to our hearts about our walk with you, your love for us and the grace in which we stand. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. What do you do if you don't want to pay for a $1.40 pack of Jell-O pudding powder? Well, if you're like Alexander and Christine Clement, a couple in their 60s from Long Island, you buy the pudding, replace the powder with a mixture of sand and salt, and you return the package to the grocery store for a refund. The couple struck four stores in 2010, purchasing and returning about 50 packages of pudding. The tampering was discovered when a customer who bought one of the fraudulent pudding packages complained to the grocery store and surveillance video led police to the Clements. The couple was indicted on multiple counts of petty larceny and tampering. Police believed that they weren't out to harm anyone, they just wanted free pudding and likely acted under the influence of age-related mental illness. Package tampering can be a lot more serious, as you, I'm sure, are aware. The most infamous case of product tampering is the Tylenol crisis of 1982, in which seven people in the Chicago area died after taking what they thought was extra-strength Tylenol. It was, in fact, potassium cyanide. The case, as I understand it, is still unsolved. Tamper-resistant and tamper-proof packaging are helpful, but some things just cannot be totally kept free from tampering. We're going to see in our text that people like to tamper with God's word. They like to tamper with the Bible. They like to do things like add to it or subtract from it. Word tampering, as we will call it, is a serious spiritual health issue. So we'll do well to pay close attention as Jesus deals with the teachers and their teachings. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you are tempted by word tampering teachers. Number two, you are threatened by word-tampering teachings. First of all, in verses one through four, let's look at the teachers themselves. Listen to this description of word-tampering teachers. It goes like this. Some want to add to the Bible and some want to take away from it. Some would bury it and some would pare it down to nothing. Some would stifle it by heaping on additions and some would bleed it to death by subtraction from its truth. The poster boys for going to extremes in tampering with the word of God are the first century Pharisees and Sadducees. Pharisees and Sadducees occupied opposite ends of the spiritual spectrum. Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. Sadducees did not. Pharisees believed in an afterlife. Sadducees did not. Pharisees believed in the existence of angels and demons. Sadducees did not. The Pharisees accepted the entire Jewish canon we call the Old Testament as the inspired word of God. The Sadducees only accepted the first five books of Moses as God's word. 
Pharisees can rightfully be called legalists because they added so much to the word of God in terms of the traditions of men. In fact, as we've seen in previous studies in Matthew, they elevated the traditions of men to a place actually above the word of God as being more important than the word of God. Sadducees can rightfully be called liberals because they subtracted much from the word of God in terms of denying most of God's revelation to man. And though they were also liberals in their politics, we are using the word to describe their theology. Commentaries make much of the fact that these two groups rarely agreed on anything except their rejection of Jesus. It was a case of the enemy of my enemy is my friend with them. And while it's true that they came together to reject the Lord, they were rivals but not enemies who worked together uh, in the system that they had there under the Roman government. Now, this is the first time we meet the Sadducees in Matthew's gospel, and so let's pay attention. Verse one says, then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and testing him asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. Sadducees didn't often stray very far from their power base in and around Jerusalem. Their appearance here out in the boonies and with Pharisees tells us this was an official delegation sent by the leadership in Jerusalem. They had been sent testing Jesus, and the word really is tempting, not testing. They weren't trying to determine if he was, in fact, the Messiah. They were trying to prove that he wasn't. The Pharisees had seen, and the Sadducees had heard of, plenty of signs. They tempted him to show them a sign from heaven, or we might say a sign in the celestial heavens. The Pharisees believed that demons could work signs and miracles on the earth as counterfeits to God's power. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, they had accused Jesus of working his miracles through the power of the devil. They said, you do your miracles by Beelzebub, the devil. It was their excuse for why Jesus could do what he did in the supernatural realm. They were therefore wanting a sign strictly from the sky, a celestial sign, maybe something like Elijah's calling down fire from heaven in the Old Testament upon the prophets of Baal. Because they were already convinced Jesus could not do it, it was a temptation. It was an evil, insincere solicitation. So they apparently had gotten together and they thought, hey, he's doing all of these things and, and we discredit them by saying he's doing them in the power of the devil, even though that's stupid. But he hasn't done a celestial miracle like Elijah calling down fire from heaven, and so let's tempt him in that way. Now, the Sadducees didn't believe in miracles at all. I'm not sure what their response was to the many miracles Jesus had already performed. They probably dismissed them the same way people do today. You know, just because... People in our generation maybe haven't seen a miracle doesn't mean there aren't historical miracles by the ton in the book, you know, in front of you, in the Bible. Uh, And so the Sadducees say, well, I, I heard about it, but I didn't see it, and we don't believe in it. They had no thoughts Jesus could show a sign from heaven, so they were acting like all those who set out to debunk the supernatural. Again, it was a temptation because it was an insincere request. If it were me, 
I'd have called down fire from heaven to consume them. Bam! How's that for a sign? Wouldn't that have been great? Hey, we'd like a sign from heaven. Like Elijah's? Yeah, that'd be great. Wow! Man, he got hot all of a sudden. That'd be awesome. But that wasn't what Jesus did. He answered and said to them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Now, Jesus called them hypocrites. So what was their hypocrisy? They were only acting like they would believe him if he performed a celestial miracle. They would not believe him. He knew they were merely tempting him. And so it was a hypocrisy. It was, they put on a face of, we'd like to see a miracle to prove who you are, but inwardly they had already decided that it was only to discredit him. Now, since they mentioned the sky, Jesus used it as a sort of uh, jumping off point for a parable to expose their insincerity. They looked to the sky, they saw its condition, and they discerned the coming weather. They ought to therefore be able to look at the signs of the times and discern that Jesus was their promised Messiah without any further miracle. God the Father had spoken audibly from heaven at Jesus' baptism. How is that for a celestial sign? John the Baptist, recognized among them as a prophet, had declared Jesus was their Messiah. Not only did Jesus perform miracle after miracle, he exhibited total power over the devil and spoke of binding him. And so when the Pharisees said, you're doing your miracles by the power of the devil, he said, that's ridiculous because then Satan would be against Satan. I am binding the devil. I have control over the devil. And throughout his ministry, Jesus cited from the Jewish scriptures how he was fulfilling the word of God. The signs of the times were everywhere evident. It was an absolutely unique time in the history of the world and in the history of Israel. No further sign needed to be given. It wasn't because Jesus hadn't performed a celestial miracle that they didn't believe. It was that because they wouldn't believe, Jesus would not perform any celestial miracle. He would, however, give them a sign. Verse four, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah and he left them and departed. Jesus had said this before. He used Jonah as a type of his own death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. Jonah had been in the great fish three days so Jesus would be in the earth but then rise from the dead the third day. The trouble with this sign for the Pharisees and Sadducees opposing Jesus was that by the time they saw it, it would be too late for them. The time to receive Jesus as their Messiah and have him establish the kingdom on earth would be past. He would instead return to heaven to await his second coming. Between the two comings of Jesus, also like Jonah, the gospel would go out to Gentiles and they would be saved. And so Jonah is not just a sign of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a sign of the fact that the gospel will go to Gentiles and Gentiles will be saved. Now these Pharisees and Sadducees are described as wicked. They were tempting him with no sincerity that they would believe should Jesus comply, and that was their wickedness. And by the way, miracles will not save anyone not by themselves. 
The Bible is a miracle record book. The Gospel of John ends by telling us that Jesus did so many miracles that if they could all be written down, if it was possible to transcribe all of them, the world would not be big enough to construct a library in which to house them. That's how many miracles Jesus did. The fact that you and I don't see them doesn't mean they didn't happen and that they're not verified. The people you're sharing with don't need to see any more signs. God may graciously give them, but what they need, all they need, is the word of God, which is the power of God unto salvation. And so I'm not against miracles. I, you know, maybe like to see one as long as I'm on a safe place when it happens. You know, I was watching a couple of representations the other day of the Red Sea parting. I would have taken a lot of faith to get into the, into, uh, you know, into that little area there with walls of water on each side. Uh, miracles are kind of terrifying, if you know what I mean. And, uh, you know, I'd love to see one. God still does them. But no one needs to see one because the, 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 the book we have is a record, an uh, accurate record, a sincere record of tons of miracles, and it's just a drop in the bucket of the miracles that Jesus did. Now, the adultery of the Pharisees and Sadducees was spiritual adultery. They were not faithful to God or else they'd have recognized that he was indeed among them. He was standing right in front of them. He left them and departed. It was symbolic to his disciples of the fact that after the nation of Israel rejected Jesus, God would leave them to pursue the Gentiles. It doesn't mean Jews cannot be saved. It means God's particular program for Israel to establish a kingdom on earth has been postponed until Jesus returns the second time. If we want to oversimplify and say that the Pharisees and Sadducees represent the spiritual extremes of legalism and liberalism, then it's easy to see that these teachers are still among us today. There is definitely a spirit of Phariseeism in the church at large. Men still add to the word of God their own traditions, heaping upon you burdens not meant to be borne under God's grace and not lifting a finger to help you. Uh, we just seem to have a natural penchant as Christians to want to add things to the word of God, to the grace of God, by which we decide we and other people are just more spiritual because you know, we're doing certain things. And then these become extremely important. Uh, you can't be members of a church unless you do certain things. And uh, you know, unless you're, uh, my favorite one is, is rebaptism. A lot of churches, um, they require rebaptism in order for you to be a member of their church. Now, part of me doesn't care. You could be baptized 100 times. Yeah, I mean, people sometimes they go to the Holy Land. And even though you've been baptized, you want to be baptized in the Jordan River, go for it. I mean, it doesn't matter. But when a church says, you say you're a Christian, born again by the Spirit of God, baptized into the body of Christ, but we don't believe it unless you are baptized in our church, in our water, our special you know, water that we have here. And then we will accept you as a member of our church. I honestly, maybe you don't have a hard time with that, but I have a hard time with that. I don't think I could go to a church like that. I'm not saying those people are not Christians. I'm not seeing, saying they're not wonderful on every other level, but 
when you require rebaptism into in a particular church in order to be recognized as a member, I don't know what that's all about. I, I just it baffles me. It, it's adding something to the Word of God that I don't see there. Uh, it just it just it's mind-boggling and so you know it's just a, a a small example and there are other worse examples of course and then there's a, certainly a spirit of sadduceeism as well most of the mainline denominations have subtracted the essential orthodox doctrines from the christian faith uh, and that's just a fact and they would agree uh, so when you and i talk about things like the physical bodily resurrection of jesus christ or the virgin birth of Christ. Most of the mainline denominations snicker and they say, well, we all know that that didn't really happen that way and it doesn't matter. They say it doesn't matter if Jesus rose from the dead or not because we still have his moral teachings and his ethical teachings and uh, there's no such thing as a virgin birth and all of this. And so, you know, this is, this is par for the course. Watch any amount of educational television for a while and see their religious experts, uh, you know, just totally trying to debunk uh, the truths of the Bible and yet still wanting to use the Bible as a, as a book, uh, you know, and who becomes the authority then? Am I the authority over God's word or is God's word the authority in my life? And so uh, Sadduceeism is alive and well. These teachers tempt, not just in the church, but in the world as well. Think of the proverbial liberal college professor out to destroy the faith of young people. My very first day in my very first class at the University of California, Riverside, the philosophy professor who was also the chairman of the department and who would become my advisor, opened by stating matter-of-factly, these were his opening words, Christianity has failed. I... Amen, I said, because I, you know, had been in a Roman Catholic tradition that didn't do anything for me, and uh, I wasn't really following the Lord, didn't know the Lord, and I thought, okay, you know, this is great. Now, I can, you know, be with intellectuals who think that Christianity has failed, and then we went on to study a bunch of crazy philosophies that all fail. He was an existentialist. And uh, later on, they don't tell you this at the beginning, but if you get really deep into existentialism, you have to have a class that tells you why you shouldn't kill yourself. Because existentialism is, essentially, this is an oversimplification, but it's essentially teaching you that uh, maybe there's a God, maybe there is, it doesn't matter because he's not involved anymore. And uh, you just, you exist, there's no reason to do good, there's no reason to do bad, there's, there's no moral compass, there's nothing. Uh, you might as well not exist because you're not going anywhere after you die. And, and the, the logical conclusion, really, of existentialism is, well, why don't I just kill myself if life is so absurd? And, and yet they try and convince you. Somewhere in their heart of hearts, they think, well, maybe that's not such a good idea. Maybe they'll lose tuition. I don't know what it is they're worried about. <laughs> They don't want people killing themselves. Uh, but, and you think I'm joking, but it's true. Graduate studies, they have to, you know, you get deep into this and, and suicide is a real option. And so that's what's out there. While we're talking about the Sadducees, in addition to the label liberalism, we could add rationalism. Remember, these were guys who denied all things supernatural. Rationalism has lots of definitions, but in general, we're talking about considering human reasoning and intellect as being more important than anything in the supernatural realm, certainly uh, more important than God's revelation. 
Legalists tempt to. All the religions of the world, regardless, they'd argue the point, are legalistic. They all teach that there is something you must do to achieve spirituality. There are rules to follow, rituals to perform, sacraments to partake of that they say confer a righteousness that approves you before God. And we would say nonsense. You cannot achieve righteousness with God by your own efforts. You can only receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ as a gift from God by believing that he died in your place for your sins. God must declare a believing sinner righteous by grace through faith in the risen Christ. Any addition to or subtraction from salvation by grace through faith reveals a Pharisee or a Sadducee in your midst. Now, in verses five through 12, you're threatened by word-tampering teachings. It'd be great if we were so solid in what we believe that there was no real threat to us in these teachings. In the following verses, Jesus is going to warn his closest guys about the danger in these word-tampering teachings. If his disciples, who had been with Jesus going on three years, who had witnessed his miracles and sat directly under his teaching, needed to take heed and beware, then we do too. And so verse 5 says, Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. One of the 12 missed his assignment as the quartermaster for the day. Uh, you know, we know they had uh, Judas kept the, the money bag and uh, they probably took turns with their various assignments and whoever was supposed to bring bread for them on their journey didn't. And so here they were without bread and probably in a little bit of a huff about it. I know I can get surly around dinner time. I don't know about you, but when I'm hungry, I just want to eat. Jesus decided to use their circumstance to get their minds on more spiritual matters. I have to think that the Lord does that a lot, use our circumstances to try to get our minds on more spiritual matters. Or at least he tries to get our minds on more spiritual matters. If you're like me, we're all more like the disciples, missing the point. And they reasoned among themselves saying, is it because we have taken no bread? Jesus wanted to make application of his encounter with the Pharisees and Sadducees. He knew they were thinking about bread, so he used it as a spiritual illustration or analogy. After Jesus spoke, I get the impression the guys knew something more was being communicated. It says they reasoned among themselves. They had a meeting, a powwow, a confab. Jesus talked and they, they looked at him for a while and they looked at each other, kind of like when a husband doesn't understand his wife. Yeah, you're, I don't mean this in, the, in a mean way, but you know how sometimes women, you say something and you think we understand? I agree we should understand. We don't because it relates to a conversation that happened yesterday, but you're still thinking about it. We should still be thinking about it, but then I, I get this blank stare like, and I'm thinking, can I remember everything that was said? And Pam knows. She knows I'm, I'm in the dark about it and stuff. But these guys, they saw this kind of a blank stare, and then they retreated and they say, hey, let's get together. Let's figure this out. What does Jesus mean? And they come up with this saying, it is because we have taken no bread. They put their heads together in a think tank and that's what they came up with. And it just goes to show you that 12 heads are no better than one. The things that come out of some meetings are astonishing. Do you like meetings? Are there ever any real, I mean, there are, sometimes you do have to have a meeting. There's things that have to be done, but uh, I was talking to somebody who's telling me about uh, 
one of their, I think he was a captain here in the Navy, uh, but anyway, at his meetings, he removes all the chairs from the room. So everybody has to stand up during the meeting, hence everybody wants to get done with the meeting as quickly as possible, and they get right to it, and they get it done, and they get going and stuff. And so I, I, don't, I don't know how much of my life has been spent in meaningless meetings where nothing's getting done. And you know what happens in meetings? People, they, they, I don't know if they lose consciousness or they go crazy, but they come up with ideas that they would never come up with in a normal situation. I don't know what it is. And, and this is one of them. And so this is an absolutely stupid thing that the disciples come up with. And while there can be wisdom in a multitude of counselors, their counsel might uh, not be spiritual. It might be worldly. And so we want to make sure that we have spiritual counsel. Now, more importantly, we ought to assume God is constantly desiring to show us things from the ordinary experiences in our lives. It's not a matter of stopping to smell the roses. It's a matter of creation declaring the glory of God and our creator being able to minister to our hearts through many and various means if we're attentive. God loves to communicate. He visited Adam and Eve every afternoon in the Garden of Eden. Think of all the direct conversations God had in the Old Testament with guys like Abraham and Moses. There are metaphors and similes and types and illustrations galore. Don't forget dreams and visions. God even spoke through enemies of his people in order to reach them. I love the opening of the book of Hebrews where we read God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. The only question is, am I listening for his voice? Do I understand that God can speak to me many different ways and wants to all the time. How many of you remember the old RCA logo of the dog curiously listening to the gramophone? Do you remember that? Yes, famous, iconic image. It was from a painting actually called His Master's Voice and the idea conveyed was that the dog could recognize the voice of his master even though it was coming from a strange source. I mean, think of it, if you're a dog, why would your master be talking out of a gramophone um, when he's sitting right over there? And so it was a curiosity, but you recognized your master's voice no matter where it was coming from. Maybe we should go through our days cocking our heads to one side, discovering more sources of our master's voice. Now, verse eight, but Jesus being aware of it said to them, oh, you have little faith. Why do you reason among yourselves? Because you have brought no bread. Little faith is better than no faith. The Lord can say this to me anytime and I'll receive it. Uh, I'd be the first to admit that I have little faith in many areas Uh, It is a a reproof, but uh, praise the Lord for little faith. Instead of reasoning among themselves or ourselves, maybe we should seek the Lord. If there's a spiritual component, we need to discover it through spiritual means, not by reasoning it out. A Pharisee figures things out ahead of time by making up a rule for exactly how to act and react in every possible situation. Pretty soon, life is all about keeping the rules, and there's no vibrant relationship with the Lord. The original intent of God's word, what we might call the spirit of the law, is lost as it is subordinated to keeping the letter of the law. And so that's how a Pharisee approaches this situation. You don't really have to wait upon the Lord or hear from God or listen for his voice because you already know what to say. A Sadducee figures things out by reasoning using only their intellect. 
They might open and close a public discussion or a personal devotion in prayer, but there's no thought of seeking and waiting for and receiving any supernatural leading. Who needs that when you've got your smarts? Uh, what, What else would God say but what I've decided we're going to do with the wisdom that God has given me? The strictly rational approach makes Christianity mechanical. You're like George Banks, proud to declare, I always know what to say, when what you really need to say with joy is supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Remember George Banks? I love that character. He, he always knows what to say, and yet uh, his life is empty and meaningless and rigid and mechanical until he figures out that there's more to life. And then that's the Sadducee. That's the person who prefers intellect and reason. Uh, well, let's open in prayer. Let's pray for 15 seconds and then discuss this for three and a half hours and then thank the Lord for giving me the wisdom to tell you what we're going to do. And that's, uh, that's the usual meeting. As opposed to some of the meetings in the book of Acts where we read there that uh, the guys got together and they were in prayer when prophecies came. And they said, hey, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna separate Barnabas and Paul and send them out onto the mission field. That's like an unheard of thing. They were like the key guys at that church. They would have never come up with that idea on their own. That was something from the Holy Spirit. And then they prayed more about it to make sure it really was the Spirit. But, you know, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. Verse 9, do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? Jesus reminded them of what they'd seen him do in providing bread and fish in abundance for crowds of 20,000 and 16,000 if you count the women and children. He could easily provide bread for them. If I have some need, I might sometimes joke saying that if the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills, why doesn't he just kill one and give me the meat? People say that sometimes. Well, you know, the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills from the Psalms. I say, yeah, just have him slaughter one then because I'm hungry or my rent is due, or whatever it is. The situation I find myself in can never be the result of any unfaithfulness on the part of God. It may be a discipline, maybe a lesson for me, it may be the result of living in a fallen world, it may be that our enemy has attacked us. But it cannot reduce the love of God for me in Christ Jesus my Lord. He didn't save me to abandon me. Verse 11, how is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Yeast and bread can be a good thing. I, for one, don't really care for unleavened bread. I like a big puffy loaf of bread, garlic bread preferably. It's not the yeast Jesus was talking about. It's how it works in the bread. Just as a little yeast powerfully affects the entire lump, so does a little word tampering go a long way. There's an expression Christians like to use. You may or may not have heard it before, but it's, it's fairly common. If you point out to someone that the so-called Christian book they're reading is full of error, they might say, I eat the meat and spit out the bones. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but the idea is that I'm very discerning. And so I can read you know, stuff that heretics put out and false doctrine and all. I can read that knowing that some of it's error, but, you know, I'll just take the meat of it, digest that, and spit out the bones. But they're using the wrong food in their analogy. You'd need to be able to say, I eat the bread and spit out the yeast. You can't do that. You can't do that because it's too pervasive. And that's Jesus' point. When you're tampered with the word of God, you can't separate out the tampering from the pure word of God. 
Verse 12, then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the doctrine or the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Kudos for them. They got it in the end. They put it together after a bit more explanation from Jesus. This principle certainly has immediate application to what you read and listen to that is of a spiritual nature, namely your Bible study and Christian books, those kinds of things. But I'd like to expand it to other things we read and listen to because legalism and liberalism are not confined to the church. They don't just come against us in uh, Christian uh, literature and things like that. It's really a very yeasty world out there. There is a satanic conspiracy to influence you and to corrupt you. Jesus' advice was to take heed and beware. It assumes we have a spiritual humility and not think we are above being tempted and threatened by word tampering. We become legalists when we try to take heed and beware for others. We need to examine ourselves, our own lives. We might do what we would call a spiritual threat assessment, knowing that there's danger all around us. And so it's very interesting. You you and I have to proceed with caution because there is danger all around us. Everybody is tinkering with and tampering with the word of God even when it's not directly in the church or about Christian things. There's many doctrines out in the world. In fact, the Bible says there are doctrines of demons. And this has nothing to do with demon possession or Satanism or the occult. These are just false teachings of men, false philosophies, false religions that will get you thinking the wrong way about God and who he is and what he's done. They'll get you off target. And so there is a sense that we should constantly be doing threat assessments. I know there's people in the government, you know, ever since 9-11 that do threat assessments and they, they change the color, you know, is it green, is it orange, and all that. We need to have threat assessments in our life. And I think, okay, this, this job that I have, what, what, how does it challenge the word of God? How does it challenge what I believe to be true about Jesus Christ? The school that I'm going to, the teachers that I'm sitting under, uh, the church that I go to, sure, for sure, but everything that I encounter, the the literature I read, the, the shows that I like, everything that I do, how is this in competition with the word of God and do I at least understand that? And here's the thing, I learned this a long time ago, but I still struggle in this area. I am easily influenced by things in the world and by other individuals. I don't think I am and I don't want to believe that I am because I want to think that I think for myself, right? We all want it. Well, I've, yeah, I think for myself. But I can almost always, just like in a Christian realm, when a certain book is peaking, I can almost always tell who's reading that book because it changes your language. A few years, many, many years ago, I'll use this as an example. It's a great book. I loved it myself. Frank Peretti's novel, This Present Darkness. Remember that? It was it's really a wonderful book. Uh, it's not 100% biblically accurate because it's a, you know, it's a uh, tale, but um, everybody was reading that book and everybody was seeing demons everywhere. And they didn't make the connection. 
And so people would come to me and say, you know, I just had this thing happen. I, I really got this sense that the demon of lust was sitting over this person. I said, well, really? I said, on a separate note, are you reading Frank Peretti's novel, This Present? Yeah, how did you know? Wild guess. But I've seen that in my own life as well. You have to be careful uh, how, how easily you're influenced. And so you have to do a threat assessment, be a little bit on guard. Take heed, the Lord said, and beware with a humility that there's a lot of word tampering going on out there. Father, thank you for our morning.